I've simply titled my sermon this morning, Make Wise Decisions. And you would say, well, that goes without saying. Who would be foolish enough to make foolish decisions, right? Well, a lot of people are foolish enough to make foolish decisions. Today we're continuing with our sermon series in the book of Acts, on the power of God in the book of Acts. And today we're in sermon number five. And just to bring a little bit of perspective for those who have not been listening or don't have the background of all these different sermons, in the first sermon we had, in the series, we had the story of Pentecost, how the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and the church was born, power and miracles, and 3,000 people got saved that Sunday, uh, was it Sunday? Pentecost. That day, and the church was born. The second sermon was how Peter and John went to the temple to pray one day, and they ended up healing a lame man who couldn't walk. Peter and John got into no end of trouble for doing that miracle. And the religious leaders had it out for them, and they arrested them, and they spent the night in jail for that. Our third sermon, we talked about how Peter and John dealt with the situation the next day when they released them from prison, took them to court, and then they had it out in front of the law. And they were faced with threats, and the, uh, the uh, legal authorities tried to intimidate them, power and control, and yet Peter and John says, no, we're not going to do what you tell us because God told us to preach the gospel, we're going to do that, and that's what we're going to do. Then June 21st, we had a break for Father's Day. And June 28th, we continued with our series in sermon number four. We looked at this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who wanted to look good without being good. They wanted to look holy without being holy. And we had the illustration last Sunday, the styrofoam cake. Some of you remember that. Today we come to a different sermon, a different kind of challenge, a different kind of problem. The problem the church faced in in chapter 6 was not an outward problem where people were attacking and people were trying to make inroads into the church. This problem was an inward problem. It was an inside problem. And it called for wise leadership. And maybe it wasn't even so much a problem. Maybe it was more a, we could call it, a growth opportunity. We must always remember Satan does not care if he has to use the good thing to rip out the true thing. Uh, let me repeat that. Satan does not care if he has to rip out, give, um, rip out, if he wants to get rid of the good, he'll, uh, the true thing, he'll provide a counterfeit. Or maybe not even a counterfeit, just something that's good but not as good. So he'll just downgrade it, notch it down a little bit. And so he works with lies and deception. He's a very smart person. Satan's very, very smart. In fact, he outsmarts us. He's also very powerful. If you ever wonder how Satan works, read your Bible. It tells us. Very deceptive. Appears as an angel of light, Paul writes. Very intelligent. And the smartest people get duped. There's no one on earth who can outsmart him. That's why we need the Holy Spirit consistently and constantly in our lives. But he's limited. He can only do so much. He's a created fallen angel, an evil being, has his minions, his demons working with him, the kingdom of darkness, the Bible calls it. And often when a person becomes a believer, Satan instantly knows that person's out of reach now. The addictions, the person's now fighting. The addictions are no longer the priority. The person's now not following him anymore. And Satan knows that he can't just turn this person back around. The person did a 180. He can't just do another 180. So he does a slight course change. Just a small one. And another one. And another one. And so, in fact, he joins that person. Oh, you're going to church now. Cool, real cool. Which church? Okay, that church is a great church. Okay, why don't you okay, now commit to that church, but only this far. Oh, this, this doesn't matter either. So, and so little by little, little by little, 
he will get the person, before the person knows it, oh, wait a minute, what have I just done? I said there's no children's story today, but I'm going to tell a little story that I was told happened in my community where I grew up. A um, few streets over, a road over down the, uh, down the road, there was a family, a fairly large family. They had lots of boys. They had, I think, one girl, maybe the rest were boys. And you know how boys are. When they grow up, they were maybe 10, 12, 13 years old, maybe 14 even, just a long row of boys. And so these guys would do what boys do, roughhouse and tumble and wrestle, what boys do, right? And so boys love wrestling and, and horsing around and so on. And they get good at it. One day, a man came to visit this family. This, guy had, this man had a kind of a garage, and he was fixing cars. And so one day, a customer comes and visits and with something to repair, perhaps, and he brings his son along. Well, this son sees all these boys there. And this son is kind of tall. He's big. He's, he's strong. And he wants to wrestle with these boys just to prove that he can take them, just to prove and so the oldest of the family, he's scared because this guy's taller than he is. And what about the rest of them? So he, he doesn't want to wrestle. And all of a sudden, one of the little ones says, I would like to try it. Now, that kind of got under the skin of this older kid who had just come to visit. Because if the older one's afraid and you are going to challenge me. And so the fathers were both okay with it. So this older boy got after this little guy who was going to wrestle him. And in a blink of an eye, the little guy had him down. Now, the old guy, now this taller visitor, he's surprised. He's shocked. What happened? He's a little bit taken aback. Like he had not expected to be thrown so fast and so quick. So suddenly, let's try again. And so they tried again. In an instant, he was down again. And now he was getting angry. Numerous times, over and over again, he couldn't take the little guy. Now, the little guy couldn't keep him down. He was too small and too, too, too weak. He was not strong enough to, take, to keep him down. But he, he always got him down. The, the older guy never kept his balance. Well, they ended it. And then um, later on, his dad said, how did you do that? How were you able to get the tall guy down? Oh, the little boy said, that's easy. Just find out which way he's falling and help him along. Just find out where he's leaning help him along. I was thinking about that this last week as I was preparing my sermon. Satan does not really care which way we're standing, we're leaning, as long as he can push us down in the, in the direction we're leaning. That's what he does. If you have a weakness, you have a, you have a temptation, he'll feed it. If there's a weakness in your life, he'll feed it. And once he can get you obsessed and fixated on it, he might just get an inroad to take you down. And... He knows where our weaknesses are. Let's, let's be honest. Let's be real here. Satan knows exactly where we're weak and where we're strong. And there are certain areas he'll never tempt us because he knows there's no success. But there are others he will really tempt us. The things that attract us, things that we're drawn to. The early church, when they started, Satan attacked the church in numerous ways. There was opposition from the religious leaders. We talked about that. There was the corruption inside job, actually, by Ananias and Sapphira. The, the lying. He tried that. But each time the church countered, each time the church was strong, each time the church was successful in, in, in holding off the attack. But then there was another way, a very quiet, silent, subtle way. Maybe not silent, but a subtle way. And something that was, was, was hard to identify. You see, oftentimes when we face a struggle, the greatest, the easiest struggles are the big ones where it's clearly black and white. We just know, we just know. 
where it's not so clear is when it's kind of gray. We're not quite sure. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 6. A need arose, and it caused strife. But we can say the apostles were wise. They were on the ball. They were alert. And we can say they nipped it in the bud. And again, it was a testimony of the power of God in the life of the church as the apostles exercised wisdom. So with that, let's turn to Acts chapter 6 and begin reading verse 1. But just, a few, just a bit of backdrop here. To understand this properly, we need to also know Acts chapter 4, which we'll read a little bit later on, but I just want to read this, this here for now. And then Acts chapter 4 talks about how generous everybody was and how the church was supplied with all that they needed. Nobody was needy among them, and Satan atta- attacks in different ways. But here it says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, get this, there were rumblings of discontent. And we always thought they were nice Christians. We always thought they had it all together. We always thought they always got along. We always thought they never had disagreements. There were rumblings of discontent. The Holy Spirit had just infiltrated the church. I mean, made, uh, give birth to the church. They had just seen all these miracles. The Holy Spirit was there. There were rumblings of discontent. Were they not Christians? Of course they were. Why the rumblings? You know, there's only two kinds of sinners, saved sinners and lost sinners. You may say, you can't say that. Well, we're saved by grace. We're saints. Yes, we're saints. But only in God's grace we are saints. And of the flesh, we're all sinners, every one of us. Well, let's read the last part of verse 1. It says, the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Was it actually happening? Very possibly. Let's, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, let's, let's say it was happening. We could say this was the first social assistance program ever conceived and put into practice. The first one recorded in history. Let's note this was not an outside attack of evil. This was an inside attack by Satan trying to divide people, to split people. Was there intentional discrimination? I don't think it was intentional. Was there discrimination? Probably. Sometimes... Things happen that shouldn't. <clears throat> and sometimes good things happen that should not happen. I said that right. Good things happen that should not happen. And it's not because somebody's trying to do bad things. Some things happen that should not happen because they're not careful planning, not careful structure, not careful organization. Sometimes that's the problem. And that becomes fertile ground for seeds of discontent and hurt and grumbling. That was what's happening here. When the, when the church started, there were two types of Jews in Jerusalem. One was a group of people that had kind of moved in or come from elsewhere. They were Greek-speaking Jews. Another group was the uh, Jewish-speaking Jews. And then there was also Gentiles. But they didn't, hadn't joined the church yet. The first while, there was just Jewish Christians. And so these two groups of Jews, they didn't get along. They had differences. And that's where the problem developed. So now... What was the problem? The Greek-speakers were complaining that our widows are being ignored. And then again, in Acts chapter 4, 34, I'll just let me read that verse here. Acts 4, 34 and 35 says, There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them, bring the money to the apostles, and give it to those in need. It tells us that everyone was looked after. But then what about chapter 6? Something had shifted. It says, Their widows were being discriminated against the daily distribution of food. That's the complaint. We don't know how much time happened from Acts 4 to Acts 6. We don't know that. But regardless, things had deteriorated. They were not as they should be. Something needed to be done. As I mentioned in my story about these two boys of wrestling, 
the smaller boy was not able to keep the guy down, but he could always take him down again and again, not because he was stronger, but he knew where the boy was weakest. Oftentimes, life is like that. Satan knows he cannot attack directly from the outside, but he knows where we are weak, and he'll go inside. The situation in the church was not... The church was starting to become a situation where the potential was real for discord, for difference of opinion, difference of viewpoints. And as if you read the book of Acts, you find it more and more as Acts goes on. By the way, just, just to say this, Acts is an incredibly fascinating history book. If you've never read it, you should read it. And here the conditions were right for a, perfect for a storm. And often in life it's like that. Satan may not get us off track, but he can change his course a little bit or deviate a little bit. And he doesn't, doesn't get us off track instantly, but he don't, a big rock on the road won't work, but he gets us differently. If you've ever run a track, some of you have run track in, in school, you have runners on. How fast would you run with little round pebbles under your feet in the shoe? There's not this big rock in the road that you have to dodge around. No, they don't, they're not there. But these little rocks that fall into your shoe, and you start hobbling and hobbling, you can't run. It slows you right down. Yeah? You know what I'm talking about? It's, that's the way it works. You can't run with pebbles in your shoes. And that's what this was in essence. Another word picture that comes to my mind is, sometimes the church is doing just fine. It's like a vehicle on the road, all of a sudden you hit an icy patch. It gets slippery. Now you have to be careful. Just revving the motor doesn't help. You won't go any faster. You can redline it, burn a lot of fuel, not go anywhere quick. Church is sometimes like that. What is needed sometimes is not more power, not more speed. It's the wisdom that's needed. We need clear thinking, wisdom and good planning. Once that's in place, things work out. So what do the guys do? The apostles say, never mind, it's your business, you're arguing about nothing, Shut up and leave it. No, it's not what they do. Verse 2. Let's read verse 2. Acts 6, verse 2. So the 12 apostles, they called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Course correction. Direction shift. First, they, everybody owns the problem. This is not their problem, their problem. This is our problem. They call it a congregational meeting of all the believers. Now, mind you, there was 3,000 to begin with, and there was a couple of thousand added later on. So I, don't, I wonder how big this, this conference really was. You see, when the body is in need, the body is in need. And I've often said it this way. When you hurt your foot, maybe you break your arm, and you don't go to work the next day, it's not like, yeah, my arm is going to stay home today, and the rest of you goes to work. No, the whole body gets involved in the correction of the problem. Paul talks about the body being the, Christ, the church being the body of Christ. So this agreement between the Greek-speaking and Hebrew-speaking Jews is everybody's issue. It's a church issue. So they get together, they have a meeting. At that meeting, they state the facts. Here's the facts: some Jews, uh, some Hebrew, uh, some Greek-speaking Jews are uh, widows are not being taken care of properly as it should be. The disciples they knew what their call was. Matthew chapter 28, the last verse. It says. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and so on. And Matthew talks about that. And so Jesus had commanded the disciples to do that. And they were doing that. And so we may ask the question, what was so bad with tying a food distribution program into the ministry? Well, nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. But it was taking something good and putting it in place of the best. 
these apostles knew that we have to change something. See, oftentimes an organization starts out well, has a beautiful mission, then over time the priorities and the, the, the mission shifts. Instead of doing what they were designed to do, they do something a little bit different. Just do something good, maybe not the best. And eventually it loses speed, it loses momentum, it loses strength. It just becomes something else. Jesus never sent his disciples into the world to start food programs. I did not say churches should not have food programs. Churches should have food programs. But that was not God's call on those 12 apostles. Good churches will feed the needy. Sure they will. And that's what this church was doing. But things had gotten to a point where the disciples saw, okay, wait a minute, we're starting to neglect the most important thing. We're starting to feed people, which is good, but it's not our job. It doesn't mean that pastors and teachers can't volunteer food programs, homeless shelters. They can do those things. And we will see they appointed workers to do this, but they didn't stick at it themselves. Just imagine what if. What if the apostles said, okay, hmm, that's too bad. We're very sorry that there's some planning going on. We're very sorry that some widows are being, being looked, overlooked and some widows are not getting their food. We're very sorry. So let's start working double shift. Hey, hey Thomas, can you work 12 hours tomorrow? And hey, Peter, can you do 16-hour shifts for a while? That's not what they did. They just put more people to work. Wise decision. You see, that here is the pivotal point. Satan did not like that. Satan would have loved the disciples and said, okay, you know what? we're going to cut the worship services shorter. We're going to do less of those. We're going to actually now meet the physical needs of the people. Good needs, legitimate needs, we're going to do that instead. That's not what they did. That's what Satan would have loved them to do. Satan loves if he can switch a ministry that God starts, has given to a person, and switch with something different. may not be bad, just different. It calls for wisdom and discernment to differentiate between that. Many a good ministry has faltered for no other reason than mixed up and confused priorities. A wrong turn somewhere. The apostles were very keenly focused on their calling, and they were not going to compromise. So what do they do? What's interesting is what they do not do. They did not leave this decision up to the congregation to make a decision what to do. They were leaders. They gave sound leadership. They give good advice, and then they handed that to the congregation to take care of. The congregation was given the responsibility how they were going to address the need. That is wise leadership. You see, the church had to own it. It was everybody's problem. The apostles gave leadership, and then transferred that to the people. The people were made responsible. I've seen it countless times in my lifetime where there's a need that's going on, and and here's a person who's already working overtime or full-time and giving so much, sees the need, I'll just have to pull a little harder, do a little bit more, work a little extra. Meantime, there's a whole bunch that don't do anything. No one enjoys being part of a team where only some pull their weight. The rest have to do extra because that results in exactly what these people had here. The apostles, they give wise direction, Wise leadership. Let's read verse 3. It says, And so, brothers, he's talking to the people here. One of the apostles is speaking. He said, So, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. Very simple solution. Very good solution. 
very practical solution, very wise solution. They outline the requirements, respectable people, full of spirit and wisdom, and then we will give them this responsibility. But who does the choosing? He said, you select seven men. Because you know the people. You know who's living next door to you. You know who the guys are that should be doing the work. You select them, we will give them the responsibility. And this is a huge issue. They have to be noble character. The qualifications have to be in there, in them. So, and that's what they should do. And Paul writes about that later on in the, his ministries as well. Full of spirit and wisdom, make wise decisions. And with that background, these seven men took on the task of distributing the food. Let me read just, um, just make a comment before we read verse 5. This is not a prescriptive story. This is not a story that prescribes how every church should run. Because churches are different, different cultures, and we have, we have different environments, different backgrounds, different, different um, situations that we face. But it does show us what principles these people use to run the church. An awesome idea. And so we can learn from that. But anyway, so let's read verse 5. It says, verse 5 says, everyone liked this idea. There's unanimous approval. And they chose, meaning the congregation, they chose the following, Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit. It's interesting what it mentions that. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them, and they laid their hands on them. The decision was well received. The congregation accepted it well. And they chose from among them seven people, and it says in verse 7, let's read verse 7, it says, so God's message continued to spread, the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. That's awesome. How easily, how quickly could all of this have just quickly spiraled into a situation of conflict, disunity, and fragmentation? But these apostles were on the ball. They were wise. And the congregation was on board too. That is what it takes to make wise decisions. An onboard leadership, an onboard congregation, and it works. They didn't shift the focus. They were doing what they should be doing, and the blessings followed. I know we shouldn't maybe think this way, but I sometimes wonder, wonder what Satan thought after that attempt. What went through his mind? Oops, didn't work this time. But the question I have then is, how many times does it work? And it says, even priests were converted. That's how effective, how powerful this was. So to conclude, sometimes I wonder at the end, when time will have ceased to exist, we're in eternity. We may be able to see back, see in the hindsight, the pitfalls that we that we went through and we can say, hmm, we could have done that one different. Hmm, we didn't, we're not too wise there. Well, that one was a wise decision. But here in the story of Acts chapter 6, an explosive, volatile situation was dealt with courage, with wisdom and insight, and trouble was avoided. How about in our time? It often feels that the church is not very strong. Too often the church just quickly just capitulates and just falls apart and gives in. Small challenges cause huge deviation. Church may look good, big organization, impressive, but no strength. It takes the smallest little midget to flip it to the ground. 
And we wonder why these little problems can take a huge organization down. Just like those boys, the tall guy and the little guy. He just looked, which way is he leaning? Down he goes. I'm hoping and I'm praying that the churches of our time are not like that. And I'm not opposed to good programs, good ministries, but if we don't keep the main thing the main thing, our relationship with Jesus and how are we serving him first and foremost with all that we have and all that we are, we will quickly and easily fall. The church's primary role is first and foremost to live for Jesus Christ, worship and honor him, then serve humanity. But if shining the light, teaching the truth, if that becomes secondary, none of the rest will matter. I'll just say it this way. When in a pastor's group setting, they're told, well, you better not name the name of Jesus in this organization or at this event, there's a problem. That's who we represent, Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage us. Let's continue meeting for worship. Let's continue praying, supporting one another. In that strength, serve our communities. May God give us wisdom and strength to glorify God and act wisely. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your word to us and we're thankful that you have not left us without example. First, your servant Jesus, your son Jesus, as a man, as a servant, as a teacher, as a savior, came and taught us. Then your apostles spread the message, and their followers spread the message. And now it's up to us. Lord, help us to be faithful, help us to be loyal, help us to be true, and to serve you well. In your name we pray. Amen.